Okay, now we're in the book of John, and we are, have been going through this. We're coming up on Easter. Today is Palm Sunday, but I kind of went over Palm Sunday a few weeks ago, and if you, if you want a good Palm Sunday message, just look that one up, all right? Because if I say so myself, right? Um, and today, what I want to do is I want to kind of slow down for a minute. We've been kind of marching through John, and we're going to look in John, but if, if, we're just going to talk about three verses. And, and this is, I think, is important to me, just a reminder for us. First of all, where are we at? Jesus is in the upper room. He knows. Scripture's already told us. He knows he's about to die. This is weighing on him. It, it says that it is troubling him. It is rocking him with, with an anxiety. Uh, 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 he's just looking ahead to see what's coming, and it's just on him. And so he has decided to teach his disciples how to change the world. How to change the world. John 13 through 17 is how to change the world. And the great thing about this is it still works. This is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. This is how we change the world as followers of Jesus Christ. So he's training his disciples. And he's been going through that. He's been starting out. And we're looking at verses 18 to 20. You can follow along on your phone, in your Bible. Uh, We're not going to put it up. It'll be up on the screen later in bits. But uh, I'm going to read it to you. Jesus says in verse 18, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So how do we change the world? How do we make the Lord's Prayer come true, that things would be down here as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus is telling them how to do this. He's telling them, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It means to live for him. Well, if that's true, we got to figure out what did he live for? What was his authority? What was his guide? What was the resource that he depended on? It says that he set aside, and so he depended on something. What resource was that that he depended on? And throughout his life, we see a common phrase that is in this passage, so that Scripture may be fulfilled, so that Scripture may be fulfilled. That's his authority. That's his resource. That's what he depends on. His life was all about fulfilling the Word of God. He quoted it all the time. I mentioned this the other day. You know, when Jesus was taken into the wilderness for the temptation, he was tempted three times. Each time he answered with Scripture. That's his authority. That's what he depends on. That's that foundation. It's the Word of God. And it has to be our authority and our guide if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there may be some here or maybe listening online that are, hmm, a 2,000-year-old book, a 2,000-year-old collection of stories to be the authority in my life? No thanks. But if, here's the thing. If we're really honest, we all live under a word. We all live under an authority. We all have a story that we're following because we have to have something that answers the big questions in our lives. Otherwise, we're being just ignorant. So the questions become things like, do you believe in God? 
If you say yes, if you say no, what's your authority? What do you base that on? Do you think certain things are right or wrong, like murder? I mean, that's just an obvious one. But why? What's your authority for saying that? Do you think your life is more valuable than, say, a bug? Why? What is your authority for answering that question? How should you spend your money? What is your authority? What becomes the authority in your life that determines how you allocate your finances? See, this happens in your time. All of these things, everyone has an authority. You can be an atheist. That's okay. You have an authority in your life. There's something that is dictating to you. Why these things? Why do I do these things? Why do I live the way I live? We all look for answers to these questions. We all look for answers to questions like these. So where do you get your answers? Because everyone has a basis for making their decisions. What is the basis for a Christian? It is the Word of God. I want you to see something. The Bible is the true story about Jesus that changes your life. And just think about this for a second. The Bible is the true story. It's about Jesus, and it changes your life. Three important things there. When we realize that the foundation that Jesus rests upon, what he quotes all the time, what he works and focuses on in saying, so that Scripture may be fulfilled, so that Scripture may be fulfilled, so that Scripture may be fulfilled, because Scripture is what's first and foremost there. And so the Scripture, the Bible, is the true story about Jesus that changes your life. First thing, it is true. All right, I'm just taking off what I just said. It is true. Look at verse 18 here. It says, I'm not referring to all of you. He's talking about Judas who's about to betray him. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. So think about what's going on. He's telling them about the betrayal. He's saying, there is someone who is intimate with me. Sharing of bread in that culture is is the highest form of intimacy. That means I've accepted you. I, 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 I... think about you. I love you. I'll serve you. You are part of my family. See, that is why when Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, they were, I was going to say they were pulling their hair out, but that's not a very good um, illustration for me. They were pulling their beard out, right? They were going crazy because he ate with them. You can't do that, Jesus. And Jesus says here, he quotes, he says, There's someone who will betray me. We've shared bread together. In fact, just a little bit, Jesus dips the bread and says, the one who I dip this bread for is the betrayer, and he hands it to Judas. So think about this. He's talking about the betrayal. They don't get it. He has to say, I'm not referring to all of you dummies. It's not all of you. Because they're probably all like, what? Right. So he's telling them about the betrayal, and they don't get it. Very soon, Jesus will be dead, and they will not understand why. Judas will commit suicide. The disciples will be scattered in fear, which means they really didn't get it, right? And they will all believe it all seems lost. What we thought was the greatest thing in the world now has turned into the greatest tragedy there's ever been. 
And so Jesus goes to the Bible to teach them what's happening and what will happen. So he quotes here Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9 says this, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who has shared my bread, has turned against me. Now, this is a Psalm of David, and we know what's going on in this, at this period of time in David's life. Right? At this period of time, this thousand-year-old poem written by David, he's facing a rebellion. The rebellion is being led by his son, Absalom. So his own son is rebelling against his authority and leading a rebellion in his kingdom. And one of his closest friends and advisor, Ahithophel, decides to side with Absalom, David's son. He betrays his close friend for his son, who's trying to take over his throne and get him killed. And so he gives Absalom advice. Ahithophel's a very wise man. He gives Absalom advice on how to go about this. But there's another person who's talking to Absalom, and he goes, "Uh, I like his advice better. And so Ahithophel suddenly realizes, I've been exposed. It's come to light what he's doing. I've betrayed my closest friend. The person I'm trying to work with has rejected my advice. And so he goes off and commits suicide. And Jesus says, this is all about me. And you can see it, right? We can see it. We have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. We can see it. And he's telling his disciples, do you understand what's going on? And he quotes a scripture. They know this story. They know this scripture. Jesus says, now, do you see what's happening here right in front of your eyes? You're seeing a rebellion against me. And so he says, this is a very close person. It's going to betray me. And in a while, you will see this. You will see this played out right in front of your eyes. I'm the ultimate fulfillment. He said, because he said, so the scripture would be fulfilled. I'm the ultimate fulfillment of this passage, of this story. I'm the ultimate David. Except I knew it was coming and I go to the cross for you. This will give you hope and comfort. Why will it give us hope and comfort? Because he says, I knew it was coming, and for my love for you, I stayed with it. I went the course. You will see that I've always lived my life based on the word. He was aligning his life with Scripture, and Scripture becomes fulfilled through that. In Matthew 5, Jesus taught them. He said, he said, Very truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, fulfilled. Jesus says, this is my job. I'm fulfilling scripture for you, for you. The smallest, he says, the the smallest letter in the uh, the Greek, but in in English, it would be the, uh, like an I, a lowercase I, say, the smallest letter. And then the least stroke was an accent stroke in the Hebrew. And so it'd be like a dot over the eye. He says, not even the dot of an eye is going is to fade away until Scripture's fulfilled. So it can be what you run for when you need wisdom, when you need strength, when you need courage, when you need comfort, when you need truth, because it will last into eternity. Jesus says, and you can run to it because I ran to it all the time 
in my greatest temptation, what did I run to? Scripture. When I'm hanging, when he's hanging on the cross, what will he run to? He will quote scripture. In these different times throughout his life, he says, so that it will be fulfilled. And so now it's us. We are no different than the disciples. It is easy. I know I do it sometimes, and I need to think about that. It is easy to make fun of the disciples and how dopey they were sometimes. But that's the way we are, right? We do this all the time. We get weird ideas. We get weird thoughts about what would be a good idea. We're no different from them. We have no idea what will happen tomorrow. It is hard for us to make sense of things, things that happened in the past, things that are happening right now, things that will happen in the future. We struggle to make sense of these things. And Jesus is telling them, you can use the Bible as your trustworthy source to depend on because it's the word of God. Because God is truth, he cannot lie. It is not within his ability to lie. And Jesus is preparing them, lovingly preparing them for the things that are to come because he knows what they're going to do. And he's telling them, you will see how this works out. In a bit, you'll figure it out. You'll look back and go, oh, man, that's what he was talking about. Oh, man. You know, but, and, and I say we're the same way, and you might think, well, how are we the same way? Well, how, how many times, have there been times in your life where things have happened, you didn't understand it, and, and then later you go, oh, boy, oh, man, I see what happened there. Or you go, I'm so glad I didn't do that. That would have been the stupidest thing in the world to do. So we see this. He says, you can go. He's preparing them. You will understand soon. So in the meantime, trust me. In the time where you're at right now, where you can't figure out what's going on, where you don't understand what's going on, trust me that I know what I'm doing. Trust me in this. Because then he says what will happen. Scripture tells us what will happen. The Scripture tells us that it will become a lamp to our feet. It will light the way. It will become healing to our wounds. And it will become a source of hope. So it is true. Secondly, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Now, I I could have said this. I probably should have said this at the front. I'm not going to tell you anything you probably don't already know. You're not going to walk away from here going, what? The Bible's true. Who to thunk, right? It's not something, but we need this. We need to go over things sometimes. We need to rehearse things in our minds. We need to remind ourselves of truths. And here's another one. It's all about Jesus. From the beginning to the end, it's all about Jesus. Verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens. So then when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Now, here's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, look, I know you're not getting it but it'll, it'll be clear. Give it time. And then he quotes that famous line from Exodus 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is, this is when Moses, he, he asked God, listen, what's your name? I mean, I got to have a name. I got to have something to attack. What, what do I call you? And he says, this is who I am. I am. And it's just taken off the word to be, to exist infinitely in either direction. I am. That's just it. This is the 
and in the original Hebrew, there were no vowels. They didn't have vowels, that culture. And um, this is that, and I get off on this sometimes and maybe overwhelm. Everybody's like, again, yod, hey, vav, hey. Four, Four consonants. This is where we get Yahweh when we add vowels. Yod, hey, vav, hey. Four consonants, but what's, I love this stuff. They're breathing consonants. Yod, hey, vav, hey. And so the ancient rabbis would say, God's name is the breath of God. And they would say, when a baby is first born, does it breathe or does it say the name of God? And when a person dies and they have their last breath. They are saying the name of God. It's just such a cool thought. You know, it's like, it's like um, I was reading one guy and he says, when, when someone says, there is no God, he says, their very breath betrays them because he is the God of breath. And so this, this name, this Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, the name that the Jews revered so much, they wouldn't say it. To this day, they will not say that name. It's too holy to, to pollute with my, with my mouth, with my lips. I think they've taken that a little far, but God says, this is what it is. And Jesus here makes a claim. He says, when Moses was at the burning bush, that was me. That was me to the disciples. And he's saying that to us also. It's all about me. John tells us at the beginning of John that he's the logos, this incredibly loaded term for for the Greek readers. He's the ultimate truth, ultimate beauty, ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate meaning. He is the ultimate. What does he say? The logos made flesh. The ultimate made flesh. I read about this. I, I looked it up. In, in uh, 1838, Ralph Waldo Emerson addressed the senior class of the Harvard Divinity School, these, these uh, young men that were getting ready to go out to be pastors, and they wanted him to give them a, a theological treatise. It's a long, long uh, sermon. But basically, at one point, he says, to fail is to not listen to your heart. The only true voice, the only sacred thing in this world is your heart, your nature. Therefore, redemption is found in the heart of man. You are your redemption. Don't look elsewhere. Don't look to a cross. Don't look to some God off in the distance. It's all within you. And then I noticed not that long ago, a woman named Gail Sheehy wrote a book, actually a series of books called Passages. And she said, we each find our own truth. See, this is the way the world looks at it. Jesus says, I am. I'm the breath. I'm your very breath of life. When you praise me, I give you the breath to praise. And when you curse me, I give you the breath to do that too. I am the breath. But the world says, no, no, no. Just look within you. We're all good deep inside. In spite of the headlines we see all the time, they say, look for that. Look for the good. And, and uh, you decide what's right and wrong. And can I tell you, that just leads to disaster. But Christians can do this. We can treat the Word of God as if it's a buffet. You pick what you like. You pick what you don't like, right? 
I always think it's funny at a buffet that they have a salad, right? I, they're just praying that you'll eat the salad. The cheapest thing fills you up. Don't eat any of that expensive meat, right? I'm just like, salad, right? We treat the word of God that way. I don't like this part. And so we avoid it or we throw it out. And Jesus says, no, no, I am the beginning. I am the now and I am the end. So trust me. Because when we treat the word of God like a buffet, what are we saying? I want a God who thinks like me. Can I tell you the worst thing that could happen to all of us is have a God that thinks like me? That would just be disaster. That would be the worst thing that could happen. I don't want a God that's just a human being with superpowers because I've seen what human beings can do. And you give them superpowers and it just gets worse. Right? I don't care what all the Marvel movies say. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus says, no, I'm the beginning. I'm the end and I am the now. The Bible is not Aesop's fables with a whole bunch of stories with morals. Because Jesus is teaching us something here. I think this is important for us to think about. There's two ways you can read your Bible. One is you can read it like it's man-centered. You can read your Bible like it's all about me. And that's what the Pharisees did, right? They took those stories. They saw the story of Abraham, and they thought, ah, that means I have to have faith. I have to have faith like Abraham. They took the story of Joseph. That means I have to forgive like Joseph forgave, which is incredible when you think about it. They took the story of David. Ah, have courage like David. The story of Job. I need to be faithful even in difficult times. That's what made them Pharisees. They readily accepted the authority of Scripture, but they missed the meaning. They only saw the pieces. It's like a puzzle. You know, you get a puzzle out and you put it on the table if your family ever does that. They drive me crazy because everyone in my family does puzzles wrong, right? I know first you find the corners. Then you find the edges. Meanwhile, I look over and there's people in my family doing middle pieces. And I'm like, you are slowing me down. I quit. I quit. See, and so the Pharisees, they're like, they got all the puzzle pieces on the table and they go, it's beautiful. I love it. But they never put it together. So they never see what the picture is. What's the meaning that's behind it all? And that's what happens. They miss the grand design because they read it like it's about me. And Jesus says, no, read it like it's all about Jesus. That it's Christ-centered. Because if you try to live by all the morals that are in the Bible, it will crush you. It is impossible. You can't do it. When God made the covenant with Abraham, right? it's not to tell us to have the faith that Abraham has. When God made his covenant with Abraham, what did he do? He basically laid out in this incredible picture, I am going to have to die for you. I know we've talked about this, but, you know, when they would, when they would, it says they cut a covenant. What did that mean? When they cut a covenant, they actually cut animals, Oof, right? Uh, they'd find a, like a piece of land that's like a trough going down, and they would cut these animals, and they would lay them on either side of the trough of this, like a, yeah, and the water, the, the water, the blood would run down the middle. And when two people cut a covenant, what would happen? The most powerful person involved, because usually like it's a king and maybe a, somebody else, or the person who's most powerful, he walks through the blood. He gets the blood on him. 
all over his feet, onto his, the hem of his garment. And once he's walked through, he says, you may do to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant. And then the, the next person would go through. There has to be two people for a covenant. The next person would go through, walk through that blood, get it all over. You may do to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant. And that's how they sealed, how they cut a covenant. And God says to Abraham, we're going to cut a covenant. And what does it say? It says, Abraham was afraid. Right? Think about it. Why would Abraham be afraid? Well, who do you think is the most likely person to break a covenant between a God and a man? Right? Abraham puts two into his says, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man, right? And what does it say? I love this. So God put Abraham to sleep. Why? So he didn't run away. God's like, trust me, you're going to see what I'm going to do. It's going to be incredible. Don't run. Ho, ho, come in. Can you imagine like grabbing him by his shirt tails? Get back over here. Sleep, right? Bonk. Okay. So what happens? What happens? It tells us it, there's two representations of God. I'm taking forever on this, but I love this stuff. There's two representations of God in that passage, all right? And it says the first representation, it goes through, and it's God saying, you may do to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant. Then there has to be two. The second representation goes through. What's going on there? It's God saying, you may do to me what we did to these animals if you break the covenant, right then, Jesus' fate is sealed. I mean, I know it was sealed in eternity, but I mean, in, in a, in a human, humanly speaking, at that moment, God took upon, said, I will pay for the covenant breakers. I will pay for them. Right? So it's not just, oh, have the faith of Abraham. No, understand what God's doing. Abraham's a picture. It's a picture that's going on for us. When David fought Goliath, what's the moral there? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. When I was a dumb teenager, I thought I could be a boxer. And I was this skinny little kid. And one time I uh, just tried it for a little bit, uh, which kind of tells you how it ended. Got into a ring with a guy that was big or bigger than me. And I thought, yeah, but I'm quick. I'm quick, baby. Oh, ha, like that. I'll be, I'll be like, like, be like the Matrix, right? And then this fist hit me right in the nose. And I learned it's not the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The bigger they are, the more it hurts your nose. That's what I learned, right? So with David fighting Goliath, it's not, oh, have courage like David. Understand something. David was the champion of Israel. He was their representative in the battle. He was designated to fight in the place of the whole nation, the whole army and the whole nation, all boiled down to two people, David and Goliath. When your champion wins, you get the benefits of the victory without participating in the fight. When David defeated Goliath, all the army of Israel and all the people of Israel got the benefits of that victory, and they did not participate in the fight. 
So Jesus is our Savior who won the victory for us. In Hebrews, it says that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. That word author is actually the one who made it happen, who created it. Oftentimes in the Greek, it's translated champion. He's our champion. He's our champion. That's what David's about. He's showing us that we need a champion. Abraham's showing us we need a God who will take our sins upon himself. So, Jesus is our greater David. He fought with the ultimate Goliath, sin and death. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we participate in the victory without having done anything. Jesus is the true Joseph. He suffered. He gets, he gets power. He forgives us. He earned the forgiveness for us in his place. All this points to Jesus. All this points to salvation by grace. It's all about him. Third point is it is true. It is about Jesus. It changes our life. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the son who sent me. We go from being individual human beings who are struggling through life into brothers and sisters who have discovered the Zoe life that Jesus teaches about instead of the bios life that everyone is living, this eternal life, this life of meaning and purpose. We become the sent ones, the ambassadors for Jesus Christ. In Psalm David, in Psalm 40, David goes through talking about those people who kind of are going through the motions of religion, you know, just, just coming and singing and, oh, thanks, that's great. Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, praise the Lord. Okay, and then just living the life the way they want, just going through the motions. And we can fall into that. And in Psalm 40, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. <clears throat> God says, I don't need them. They're a picture And then he says, but my ears you have opened. He says, you've opened my ears. The the idea of opening understanding, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. He said, I just realized these things are pictures. They don't earn me righteousness. They're just pictures of something. They're pictures that there has to be a death that can cover sin. And ultimately, there will be the ultimate lamb who will cover my sins for good, and, and it will only be one death instead of deaths over and over and over. God opened his ears to hear. It's like, um, I don't know, I think about this in the movie, The Sixth Sense. Okay, it's been like 50 years and that movie came out. I think the statute of limitations is over. I can spoil it for you. Because you watch the whole movie and you're just puzzling and putting it together and all of a sudden at the very end you realize Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. Have you ever tried to watch it again a second time? You watch it and you go, okay, I get it. It makes perfect sense now. I get it. Oh, I know why this happened. I understand why this happened. I understand what's going on here. Before, you were puzzling through it. But once you realized what the key was, if, if you haven't seen it, maybe you should have plugged your ears. I'm sorry. But <clears throat> we get a very similar thing on the road to Emmaus in Scripture. Jesus is walking out. He's raised from the dead. He's walking with some disciples. They don't don't recognize him. And they're just going, man, it was so awesome, and now it's all ruined. It's just terrible. We don't understand what's going on. We're all running for our lives. Like that. And it says he began to explain them from the beginning, the Scriptures. Explain to them how he fulfilled the Scriptures. And then they say, our hearts, our hearts burned with fire. Why? Because suddenly we put it together. 
and we understood it's all about Jesus and it changes us because of that. Now we still obey the word, but suddenly it's not about me and what I must do. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for me. And we begin to see it for what the Bible tells us it is. It says it's good news. It's not a burden of rules and regulations. It's good news. One of my favorite books, I enjoyed this book a lot. It's called The Life of Pi. There was a movie made, but the book is better. Um, but I enjoy this book because it's about a, about a guy's search for, for, for spirituality, for religion, for meaning in life. And he goes to all these different ones. And it's not a Christian book by any, any stretch of the imagination. And yet, it has sometimes portrayals that are, that are unbelievable. So th- this young man is, is, is talking to a Christian. And, uh, and, and the Christian is talking about the, the, the biblical foundation of faith. You know, Jesus Christ died for our sins, raised from the dead. And he says... This young man says this. He says, but once a dead God, always a dead God, even if resurrected. He said, the son Jesus, he he must have the taste of death in his mouth forever. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God do that to himself? And he says, why not leave death to the mortals? Why dirty something? that is beautiful, and spoil what is perfect? What a good question. Why would God take upon himself death when he didn't deserve it? He says that spoils the beauty. That that has a stench of death to it. He says Jesus must have that taste of death in his mouth forever, which is an interesting observation. And what does the Christian say to him? Love. That's it. Love. That's why. Nothing else. Just love. That is an interesting thought. That's so important for us to understand. Because then Scripture becomes about Jesus. Doesn't make me the center of it, where I tend to put myself all the time. It it elevates Jesus. So, three quick thoughts. Nothing earth-shaking. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. That probably none of you have ever had somebody tell you to do that before. Maybe sometimes memorize parts of it, maybe even parts of a verse. I love, I love in Hebrews where it says, talks about Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Why? The joy is us. The joy is us. So even just little bits about that, because it helps me sometimes if I'm struggling to go, you know what, Jesus, you're the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy, the joy, who for the, you know, the joy set before you, you endured the cross, and it was love. It was love. So read your Bible. Sometimes do it in community. We've been talking here. We just had an announcement. We have small groups also that are that are that are running or getting restarted after everything in the past two years, do it in community. Be a part of a community. Jesus is having a small group Bible study in the upper room with his disciples. That's what's going on there. So read your Bible. That's an easy one. Share share it with others. Share the word with others. Through, maybe you speak it, maybe your testimony. But think about that. I've I found something. I've, 
I've got, I'm like a person who's dying of thirst, and I figured out where water is, and there's tons of it. And I'm just going, I'm not sharing this with anybody. I want all. No, it's for sharing. And the third thing is obey it. So read your Bible, share the word, and obey it. This idea of wisdom, knowing the truth and, and acting upon it so that we become more and more like Jesus. We become involved in what he says is advancing the good news so that we become, in this passage, it says the, we're the sent ones. We've been sent to do that. That's why he died for us, for us to become his ambassadors, those people who speak for someone else. You know, it's like our ambassador the other day, our ambassador to Germany um, was talking about something, and he said, basically, he said, this is what the United States says. I speak for the president. He is an ambassador. He's not in his home country, but he speaks for his home country. That's what we are. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We speak for heaven. We're citizens of heaven before we're citizens of any other place. We're citizens of heaven, children of God. We speak for him. So read your Bible. Share the word with others. Obey it. These are not earth-shattering, but they're things that we need to be reminded of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who taught, who showed us the beauty of love and serving. Help us as followers of him to do the same. And then we experience that joy that is unbelievable. We experience the peace that is firm and strong. Help us, Lord, to be good servants, found faithful in the work. In Jesus' name, amen.